God, this morning, would you refresh us in an understanding of that which you've done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. God, would we see clearly and ponder anew all that you can do, all that you have done for us. God, would we joyfully, as we go to your word now, would we joyfully consider the reality that we have been moved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. That by faith we have been joined to Christ, the one in whom we have experienced newness of life. God, for the men, women, and boys and girls in this room, and would you put on display very clearly to us your kindness as we approach your word this morning. God, would we not be tempted in these moments to let our minds wander? God, would we not be tempted in these moments to let our hearts close up, thinking about the things that are going to come tomorrow when we get to the office or when school starts or whatever it might be for us that waits. But God, this morning as we celebrate together the Lord's Day, God, would you give us a new and fresh rest in the person of Jesus Christ, that we would cease our striving, cease from attempting to perform good works to to be made right with you and trust wholly in the righteousness of Christ that is freely given to us as those who have trusted him. God, as we go to your word now, we need your help. Would your Holy Spirit guide us in these moments? God, and would you cause us again to know you anew? It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things this morning. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Kids, ages three and four, up to and including kindergarten, you can head to the back. Miss Kelly will take you up to your classroom this morning. For everyone else in here, go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to Titus chapter three this morning. Titus chapter three. I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse three, and I'm going to read through the end of the letter. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, there is one on the table back there, right behind the door, and then there's still a few under the, uh, the offering box in the back. Feel free to pick one of those up, and I would do that sooner rather than later so that you can see these words in front of you this morning, the things that God has inspired through his servant Paul as he writes to his protege, Titus. These words are the same as if Jesus himself were standing in front of us today speaking to us. In them we find help and in them we find life. God's word is living and active. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. And like I said, I'll read through the end of the chapter. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might, uh, we might become the heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want, to ins- I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace 
be with you all. The philosopher, uh, Sir, British philosopher Sir Roger Scruton once wrote, a writer who says that there are no truths or that all truth is merely relative is asking you not to believe him. So don't. We live in a divided world and it doesn't take much looking around to begin to see that. You know well, if you've been paying attention for the last two or three years, the, the, the amount of division that exists in the world around us. But I want to posit this morning that the heart of this division isn't just lack of unity. We talk about it as if, as if well, if we were just unified, then we wouldn't be divided. But that's sort of like defining the, the word with the word. We live in a divided world because we're divided. That's what we're saying. That's not actually a helpful thing to say. Of course we're divided because we're divided. But just telling people then on the flip side that we need to strive for unity is like telling someone who eats only donuts and has no gym membership that they should become a bodybuilder. And then you say, they say, to, well, do I need to change my eating habits? Do I need to uh, get a gym membership? You say, no, you'll be fine. Just become a bodybuilder. Do whatever it is that you want to do. You can be anything you want to be. In reality, though, in order to be a bodybuilder, you need to take care of some basic underlying factors, like your, uh, your exclusive donut diet. That's preventing you from achieving your goal. Having a gym membership and having a right diet are on the list of achieving your goal of becoming a bodybuilder. So in order to treat division in our world, we have to get to the heart of the matter. Address the underlying problems that we find and that we see all around us. So what's at the heart of the division in our world? And at least in part, it's the individualization of truth. It's what the philosopher Roger Scruton that I just quoted is getting at. It's an internalization that our culture has taken truth and turned it into this personal feeling or simply personal preference. We've been doing this in the West for a couple hundred years, and we're seeing now the fruit of it culturally. That quote, the quote, a writer who says that there are no truths or that all truth is merely relative is asking you not to believe him, so don't. The reason I quoted that is if someone claims that truth is something other than objective and defined outside of the person, If they claim that there is no absolute objective truth, then how are we ever to find real lasting unity in our world? It would seem that division and disagreement, at least at some level, is inevitable with a viewpoint that says that truth is relative and a matter of personal preference. It's pretty silly that our culture says, truth is relative, and then turns around and bemoans the fact that there is so much division around us. The passage that I just read this morning, especially verses, uh, especially verses 9 through 11, which are gonna, uh, we're going to occupy most of our conversation this morning, verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul is instructing, or is warning, rather, Titus, as he instructs the churches in Crete, And really the flip side of what we explored last week. If you go back up the page in verses 3 through 8, you see Paul telling Titus that he must insist on the gospel. As he ministers to churches in Crete, and as he establishes elders, and as he he raises up leaders, and as as he trains older, more mature believers to instruct younger believers, Paul says to Titus, insist on these things. And now, in verse 9, he shows us what it looks like when those things are not insisted upon. He says, the result of these things will be foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. If a church finds itself engaging in those things, then it, the, the, what needs to happen is a further insistence on the gospel. This is why Paul tells Titus to avoid these th- things. All of the things listed in verse 9 have the potential to drive a wedge in the church. 
the truth of the gospel is foundational for unity within the church. Where the gospel is lost, division is inevitable. Where the gospel is lost, division is inevitable. So, with that in mind, I want to explore a couple of things this morning. There are two things that will guide our time together. First, how to avoid division within the local church. And then second, how to handle that division when it in fact occurs. So first, how to avoid decision or division, excuse me. How to avoid division. We like making decisions. Division. How to avoid division. You should take, I've encouraged you many times as we've spent time in Titus, to take some time to read through this letter on a Sunday afternoon because it's not long. It's just three short chapters, all of which are 15 or 16 verses long. It won't take you long to read through this. And when you see the whole argument laid out before you, you'll see very quickly that the encouragement that comes in this text this morning is not an add-on. It's not a tag-on to the end of the letter. And Paul is just saying, I got to get this out here. I don't know where to put it in the letter, but here I'm just going to tag it on the end. That's not what Paul is doing. Everything that comes before this point in the letter is driving us to this point in chapter 3. What comes earlier in the letter is an appeal from Paul to Titus to instruct what is necessary to stay saturated in what is foundationally true. Now, okay, I want to use that language here. How can the church, uh, how can the church be saturated in the gospel? When I first started preparing this, I, I said, how can the church keep the gospel front and center? But I want to say that this, the idea of saturation of the gospel is far more effective for our understanding of what Paul is saying here than front and center. Because front and center implies that there is something behind us, that there is something that's going on behind the scenes. And this is how many Christians treat the local church. They treat the local church like, oh yeah, I, I believe the gospel and it's up there somewhere, but I'm back here doing what I'm doing. And, and it, what's up there is not necessarily affecting what's back here. So the idea of saturation is important for us in understanding how Paul presents this to Titus. Think about a sponge. If the local church is a sponge, if the body of Christ is a sponge, uh, it, we use sponges to clean things, right? It's like, say you're going to wash your car I think it might be warm enough to wash your car this afternoon. So if you're going to wash your car, uh, if you take, it might be a little chilly, but if you take a dry sponge and start wiping it over your dirty car, um, you're just kind of moving some dirt around. You're not really doing anything. It's terribly ineffective. You're not going to wind up with a clean car. In fact, you might wind up scratching your paint. But if you get the sponge wet and if you get some soap on it, it'll become useful. The sponge becomes incredibly effective then for washing your car. Use that and apply it to the church. The church needs to be saturated in what's foundationally true, mainly the gospel. The church needs to be saturated in what is is foundationally true in order to be effective. And so what Paul is instructing Titus to do here is to ensure that the gospel is what is saturating the church. The gospel is the thing in which they are immersed regularly so that they might avoid the things that are described in chapter 3, verse 9, and many of the other things that are listed in the letter. How the church can be saturated the gospel and therefore be more effective in the mission comes right out of the gate in in chapter 1, and then and we see it uh, extended in chapter 2. The first thing that Paul tells Titus to do is to appoint elders to shepherd the flock, fending off cultural conformity and false teaching. So we see that right out of the gate. Look at verse 5 in chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul then in verse 10 of of chapter 1 goes to describe the cultural scene in Crete. That it's a place of immorality and there's there's a lot of terrible stuff going on. 
And so Paul says, the way that you're going to fend this off, the way that you're going to fend off conforming to this immoral culture around you that is godless, and the way that you're going to, uh, the way that you're going to uh, uh, stave off false teaching is by appointing, appointing elders. This has the effect of saturating us what is foundationally true. Because if you look in verse 9, Paul says that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Instruction in sound doctrine, keeping the church saturated in the gospel and fending off those who would wring it dry of the gospel. Elders are to instruct in sound doctrine and live consistently with sound doctrine. And we saw in, the, in, in Titus that there are a handful of these pretty, pretty, uh, pretty condensed gospel messages that are given. If you read verses 11 through 14 in chapter 2, you see the gospel clearly presented. And if you read verses 3 through 8 in chapter 3, you'll see the gospel clearly presented. So the gospel described in those two places is to be the focal point of the instruction and the shepherding that the elders of a church are engaged in. The church can be saturated in the gospel by appointing elders to shepherd the flock, fending off cultural conformity and false teaching. Additionally, Paul tells Titus at the beginning of chapter 2 to instruct older, more mature believers to be invested in younger believers. Teaching living that is consistent with sound doctrine or with the gospel. Living that is consistent with the gospel. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Living that is consistent with the gospel. This has the same effect. When older, more mature believers in the local church invest themselves in the lives of younger believers, this has the effect of saturating us in what is foundationally true. Mature men and women in the faith giving younger believers heavy doses of the gospel in word and deed, not in, just in church on Sunday, but where they can observe the, the gospel coming out through their fingertips in the way that they act in their homes with their husband and wives, down to being a mom or a dad, down to being a grandpa or a grandma, down to being an employee or an employer down to being an earthly citizen and how we engage the world around us in the civic realm. Avoiding, therefore, division in the local church begins and ends with insisting on keeping us saturated in what is foundationally true, keeping us saturated in the truth of the gospel. When what elders teach and model and what older, more mature believers teach and model for younger believers. Churches in, in our world decline and die when the gospel becomes a secondary matter. It is inevitable that a church will decline and die, maybe not numerically, maybe not in whatever way, but they will decline in their spiritual health and vibrancy when the gospel, and then ultimately in number, when the gospel becomes secondary to personal preference. Here's the reason. Because when something comes into the church and begins instructing in a false way, and when something comes into the church and begins to say, this is something or someone comes into the church and says, this issue is as important as the gospel. It begins to give preferential treatment to certain groups of people within the church. False teaching, false teaching can be defined this way. It can be defined as anything that seeks to subvert or take over the premacy of the gospel in the local church. The gospel must be always the thing in which we are primarily saturated. And if the gospel is not that, then whatever is being communicated that is not the gospel is a false teaching. And false teaching always wants to give preferential treatment to a particular group of people. Here's what I mean by that. Those who 
uh, mainly threatened the church. The churches in Crete were the what we call the Judaizers. You can see this very clearly in verse ten. For there are in verse in chapter one, excuse me. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The circumcision party were those who said, in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised. You need to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and be circumcised. They said that, and by doing so, gave preferential treatment to a group of people with an external marker on their body. And it created a different class of people. And it created a division within the local church. Some people said, well, I don't know if that's really what the apostles are teaching. And others said, no, it absolutely is. And if you don't do it, you can't be saved. Do you see how that creates a division? It creates a division between people who say you must and people who say you don't necessarily need to. Another clear first century teaching that was false that we see pop up in a later letter in the New Testament, the letters of John, is Gnosticism. And Gnosticism contains some component of special knowledge. Gnosticism contains a component of special knowledge. You need to have some sort of mystical, internal revelation if you want to know something about God and Jesus in the Bible. Or something deeper about God and Jesus. And what that does is create two classes of people as well. What's at the heart of this is this false teaching that two classes are within the church, the haves and the have-nots, those who have heard something deeper than what we see on the page in front of us and those who have not. And so false teaching, those are two examples that we see in the New Testament. False teaching always wants to give preferential treatment to a particular group of people within the local church And it always creates a division of haves and have-nots within the church. So Paul tells Titus to avoid quarrels about the law. He says that in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. When there are quarrels about the law, like in the case of circumcision, it creates division. Insist on the truth of the gospel and leave it at that. That's what Paul is saying to Titus. Insist on the truth of the gospel and leave it at that. Because of what he writes in verse 5 of chapter 3. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Not because you got circumcised, not because you observed a festival, not because you went to Bible college or to seminary, not because of anything you did, but why? According to his own mercy. The reality of verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And verse 4, but when the goodness of and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and verse 5, he saved us not because of works done in our own righteousness, but, but according to his own mercy, we all of a sudden have all of those have and have nots that we want to create according to our personal preferences obliterated. You were all dead in your sins. You have all been made alive in Jesus Christ, and that's the only way to be made alive. Your personal preferences and opinions have not elevated you to a status different than anyone other in, any, any other person in this room who has trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. This is how to avoid di- division, is to emphasize and be saturated in the truth of the gospel, showing us that there are not haves and have-nots, but those who are dead and those who have been made alive only according to the mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, We cannot get down in the mud and duke it out, but we have to insist on what is true about God and 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 God will use his word to move hearts from trusting in self to trusting in Christ. If we're to avoid division within the local church, we must be saturated in the gospel. We must be continually reminded where we were, like is communicated in chapter 3, verse 3. 
all of us in dire straits, none of us doing well, none of us okay, or just pretty good. And now we have to observe and realize where we are now in verses 4 through 7. Those who have been saved, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy. If this is true, and it is, if none of us was saved by our good works and all of us were saved according to the mercy of God, then we cannot shuffle ourselves into little tribes and little camps within the church. It is the gospel that unites us. It is the gospel that is foundationally true. It is the gospel that we must be saturated in. If you believe that something you do or something that you are makes you superior spiritually to someone else in this room, then you are at the heart engaging exactly in the things that Paul tells Titus to avoid in verse 9. In our culture, in our culture, people aren't super into conflict. And so, while in some other cultures, these things might be external and on the surface, for us in our culture, these things might be under the surface. The things that are listed here, the things that cause divisions within the local church might never be stated outside, or might never come out of your mouth. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You say, well, I'm not doing that externally. I'm not driving wedges because of these things in the local church. But you might be doing so internally even this morning. You might have walked in this morning and saw, seen someone who you did not agree with on a particular political issue and allowed a wedge of division to, to crop up in your heart. You might indulge a foolish controversy by giving way to that thought about a political position about another church member. You might indulge an internal genealogy by looking at someone else's family and saying, our family would never do it that way. You might be indulge a dissension, even if just in your mind, thinking to yourself, so-and-so offended me in that conversation that we had about our parenting at the park or at the grocery store when we bumped into one another. I should really give so-and-so a piece of my mind this morning. These, is that you? Is that what's going on inside of you? Is it squeaking out from time to time in a conversation with your spouse? Is it squeaking out from time to time in a conversation with a close friend? Even though you might never say it in this context, is it going on inside of you? And if you say, no, it's not, then I'd encourage you to check again. We are all prone to this. We are all prone in our own hearts to create external and problematic dividers between us and other people within the local church. If you can say, yeah, I've done that, then I'm not first worried about division in the local church, but this is where we started, where we should be worried about if we've really, truly believed the truth of the gospel. And that's what brings us then to the next point. The first idea here is understanding how to avoid division. The second is how to handle the division when it happens in the local church. And here's the thing. No one stirs up division, either internally or externally, in a vacuum. No one does this. This is a slow process. No one just wakes up in the morning and resolves to be divisive. No one wakes up and says, I, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really push the envelope on this thing. I'm going to I'm going to come to church and I'm going to engage in church members, but rather division within the local church comes from church members over time giving themselves internally to foolish controversies, genealogies, quarrels, and dissensions about the law. These divisions are slow growing. They're the mold in the wall. Deceptions believed about themselves and about others unrepentant thoughts about how others are allowed, are, are allowed internally to fester and grow. Unwillingness to talk to a brother or sister an offense happens. Unwillingness to go to the person who has offended you, but rather go and gossip behind that person's back. 
Just a general cynicism that believes the worst when looking at other people's lives instead of the best, like we're encouraged to in 1 Corinthians 13. An unwillingness to get the true story surrounding comments made in a community group or when you run into that person at the grocery store. That person said something really offensive to me. You think to yourself. But I'm not going to go to them to get the true answers or to express this. I'm just going to let it fester. I'm going to let it grow. No one stirs up division out of nowhere. Look at verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So look at what Paul says to do first. When someone is stirring up division, Paul tells Titus to warn the person who is causing the division. He says to do it once or twice. To warn them. This is, a, this is similar to Jesus' words that John read from Matthew 18 a few moments ago. According to Jesus, the goal of approaching the person who is stirring up division, or the goal of approaching the person who has sinned against you, is so that you might gain your brother through confronting sin. So that you might gain your brother by holding up a mirror and saying, hey, this is sinful action that you're engaged in. The call is to repent. Turn from it. This is what Paul tells Titus to warn of the divisive party and a couple of times. The goal is for the divisive party to come to repentance. To see their sin of stirring up division within the local church, amongst the body, for taking the gospel and making it a secondary matter to their personal preferences and to repent of that sin. To admit that they are making something foundational that isn't the gospel. That they are driving wedges into the church as a result. And if after a couple of warnings this person repents, that's great. The goal of this is always primary, primarily to be reconciled. It's true that they believe the gospel and are asserting their personal preferences and conforming others to sinful behavior because it elevates themselves as an authority over Christ. And when they see that very clearly, then they repent and turn. This is the goal of the warning. But Paul says, if they don't repent, he says this. He says, have nothing more to do with him. Now this is specific within the context of the church. This is specific within the context of, of these churches in Crete and within the local church. Have nothing more to do with him. Paul says. Why? Because from the perspective of the church, someone who causes repeated division within the church and apparently does so unrepentedly is someone who has not truly believed the gospel. This is the heart of what we see here. So Paul says it in verse 11. He says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Because if you have not truly believed the gospel, you don't belong to a church. You cannot belong to a local church if you are not a Christian. The definition of the local church is a group of believers who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and who are set apart for God's purposes in the world. That is what a church is. That's why if you've read through our Buffalo City Church membership covenant, the first, very first thing that's acknowledged there is that the church is made up of believers. Church membership is limited to those who have believed the gospel. And we want you to be aware by stating that if you prove yourself to not be a Christian, then you cannot be part of the local church. That is the very definition, God's definition of the local church. It's not that you're not welcome to worship here with us, but it is, it is a, 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 clear, a clear requirement to be part of a local church, is to have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and to be a Christian. So if someone within the local church who is a member continues to stir up division, the plea to the unrepentant person must be that they would see that they do not believe that the actions that they are taking are according to a clear understanding that they have been saved according to the mercy of God. And that their opinions 
on secondary matters are more important to them and are what are, they are truly trusting in. They have created divisions of haves and have-nots within the church, mainly those who have the right perspective, them, and everyone else who doesn't. This represents a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. And the misunderstanding isn't just ignorance, because if a church is seeking to be saturated in the gospel and preaching the gospel and saying, Jesus Christ came into the world and died for sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world and lived a life that you and I could not live and died the death that we deserve so that we might spend eternity, if we trust in him, so that we might spend eternity in right relationship with God. If that is being clearly communicated, it is not just ignorance. It is, in fact, a full-on rejection of the gospel. The gospel says that within the church, we are all in the same boat. There are no haves and have-nots. There are those who had not, they were dead in their sin, and those who have, according to God's mercy, who have the forgiveness of sin and have become inheritors of eternal life. Subdivisions within the church are therefore prohibited. And these aren't just idle thoughts. Paul isn't just, just saying something for the sake of meeting a word count in this letter. He is, in fact, 100% serious that Titus should consider those who stir up division and those who refuse to repent as unbelievers. Again, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18. After going to your brother and confronting the sin, then, if they are unrepentant, take it to others. And then, if they're unrepentant, take it to the church. And after doing those things, Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. As a Gentile and a tax collector is shorthand for an unbeliever. Treat this one as someone who has not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, but trusted in their own works. If you're reading this and you think to yourself, after warning him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him. If you're thinking to yourself, that seems, that seems a bit harsh, then the, the answer, or, or you ask the question, well, isn't the church meant to be a place of forgiveness? Notice that Paul says nothing about forgiveness here. It's not the person that sinned against the church by painting themselves to be a Christian and then stirring up division isn't in, isn't in need of forgiveness and shouldn't even be extended forgiveness. They should absolutely be extended forgiveness by those in the church that they have wronged. None of, none of what's written here means that we don't forgive people who wrong us. None of what it says here, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't forgive freely as God has forgiven us in Christ. But we offer forgiveness to those who offend us and who sin against us because we are forgiven, not because they are. We, we are called to forgive because God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. You are not absolved from forgiving others because they haven't trusted Christ. But they may not, if those are unbelievers, they are not necessarily forgiven by God. And if a person has not received forgiveness from God, then they are not a part of his church. It's plain and simple. If those who have not received forgiveness of God, they are not part of his church. This is the practical side. You've heard if you've been with here, us here at Buffalo City Church, if you've gone through our membership material, if you've seen some of the things that we, that, we ha that we say about the local church, we often make the statement, the church isn't a social club. The church isn't a social club. The, the things that you do here are not the same as a social club. You don't just show up and pay your dues, which we conveniently renamed an offering. You, you, and you don't get a voice all of your opinions and questions and everyone's motive and grump around airing all of your complaints. That's, not, that's what you do in a social club, maybe. I don't know. But like here, that's not what this is. That's not what this is. The church, on the other hand, is a group of sinners saved according to God's mercy who are devoted to living godly lives and who are devoted to godliness and lives that accord with sound doctrine. You don't get in to the church by dropping a check in the offering box. That does not save you. You do not get 
to be here and to, and to say, my good works and my personal preferences are the way in which I have been saved and I get it right and everyone else gets it wrong. You don't get in by paying money. You may have climbed the wall to get in, but if it becomes apparent that you didn't come through the narrow gate that leads to life, it's the duty of the church to show you out and to invite you in through the only entrance, trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So what Paul is describing here in verses 10 and 11 is a whole process. Beginning with the initial warning of divisiveness, praying for and hoping for repentance in the individual, and then it's the desire that everyone, when they're found to be in sin, repent and be reconciled to God and to the church. And that more often than not, I think is what happens. I think that you would, I think this happens regularly where men and women within the local church, I hope here at Buffalo City Church, confront one another with an offense that has been done against one, against another person. And when that person acknowledges openly, yes, I've, I offended you. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? That's what the goal of this process is. The goal of this process is first and foremost, reconciliation. When you warn someone, when they stir up division within the local church and they repent, that is the goal. So it's her desire that everyone, when they are found to be in sin, say in being divisive, that they repent and be reconciled to God and to his church. But where there is no repentance and where that person doubles down in their sin, where that person says, I did nothing wrong. I'm the victim. I'm the one who, I'm the one who is in the right. And my personal preference is law. That person is warped and sinful, Paul says and self-condemned because what he's saying here, that person has not believed the gospel because that person continues to elevate their personal preferences and their own self over God's word and others. And if that person has not believed the gospel, then they are not part of Jesus's church. Divisiveness, therefore, when it happens, is warned against for the purpose of reconciliation. But where the divisive person is unrepentant, that person is to be removed from the church because that person has not truly believed the gospel. So, that seems like a lot to digest. That seems like a lot to digest, but the reality is that the mission of the church stays the same. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And every man, woman, boy, and girl who walks through the front door on a Sunday morning Every man, woman, boy, and girl that anyone who is in Christ and who belongs to Buffalo City Church as their church home interacts with on a weekly basis is the goal is to see repentance and faith. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There is no other category here. There is not categories of haves and have-nots within the church. The only categories are those who are dead in their sins and have been made alive in Christ and those who have not. That is it. When we are saturated in the gospel, this distinction becomes clear. And when people operate outside of those things, they cannot be part of Jesus' church. We don't seek, let me give you a few concluding thoughts then here this morning from this text. We don't seek unity for the sake of unity, like I mentioned at the beginning. We don't seek unity for the sake of unity, but because unity shows that which we, that we truly believe the gospel as a church. We don't aim at unity because churches that aim at unity miss. If you hear a church that is continually talking about unity and something that exists outside of the gospel, they will miss. They will miss unity. They will get division. Churches who aim to be saturated in the gospel find unity. This is at the heart of what Paul is saying. Though the elders and the leaders of the local church who are teaching in front, if they lose the gospel, they will lose unity. If they maintain a focus on the gospel and maintain a desire to be saturated in the gospel, they will find unity. The division in the church indicates that the church doesn't hold the gospel to be foundational truth. Not that some people just need to get on board with our way of doing it. So when we have a clear picture of where we were 
and what Jesus has done for us, and when we recognize that this has implications for our own personal day-to-day living, both as individuals and as a congregation, our petty differences and preferences grow dim. Because our personal aims become subject to God's word, and we live for his will, not our own will. And we live for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing here is we don't seek unity for the sake of unity, but we, but we seek to be grounded and saturated first and foremost in sound doctrine, mainly the gospel. Second concluding point. Having meaningful, biblically informed dialogue about practices and ministry of the local church is not divisive. Having meaningful, biblically informed dialogue about practices and ministry in the church is not divisive. Here's why I'm saying this. is because when we approach a passage like this in Titus chapter 3, sometimes men and women get scared. That if they, if they voice an opinion or a preference that lies under the surface, or at least is subordinate to the gospel, that they might be silenced. Sometimes people within the church are afraid that they will be viewed as divisive if they ask questions or express concern. This is not the case. These things are not divisive. Divisiveness rather looks like getting people on your team. Divisiveness looks like a self-exaltation instead of self-denial. Divisiveness looks like grumbling about an issue when the people who cannot answer to the people who cannot answer your questions instead of taking it to the people who can. Divisiveness looks like a lack of willingness to submit to the direction that the whole congregation has set for the church and as the elders shepherd the congregation. So if you're hearing this this morning and saying, boy, I can't really say anything because if I do, I might be viewed as divisive. That's not the thing. If you have a thought or a question that is genuine, that is not not being, not, has not festered and grown into a divisive issue for you, and you ask the question, that's not divisive. In fact, we'll consider that to be an investment in the body and in t- a desire to engage more in the mission of the local church. So, having meaningful, biblically informed dialogue about practices and ministry of the church is not divisive. Finally, the unity that the church experiences through the gospel is intended to be a witness to the world. The unity that the church experiences through the gospel is intended to be a witness to the world. The division that exists in our world and runs rampant is at least in part a result of the undermining of truth. This is where we began this morning. And all of a sudden, because of the way the cultural moment that our church has, or that's existing around us, the church is in, we have a really unique opportunity to put on display unity. Because what is true is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to bring forgiveness, to bring right standing with God, not to find a people who were doing a pretty good job and just needed a little merit badge or a a little kick in the pants to get them going the right direction, but people who were brought by Jesus Christ from death to life. People who were taken from enemies and made into friends. People who were orphans and who were made family members. The world will remain around us, will remain divided as long as it rejects the truth of the gospel. But you can't deny when you look at the world around you, when you talk to your coworkers and friends and neighbors, that they have a longing for unity that they really desire to be unified, to be of one mind and one accord with those around them. But friends, you can't offer them cheap substitutes. This is only found in Jesus Christ. They're looking for it. Brothers and sisters of Buffalo City Church, you have it. Offer it to them. Offer it to them regardless of what you think that they might say to you in the moment. Offer it to them as the way that they might have life and might experience true unity. Even as they, in those moments, if they receive it, are joined to Christ by faith.
Jesus Christ died in our place. This is not just because we figured it out. Everything that we have is gift. Everything that we have is a grace. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. Jesus Christ has secured eternal life for us. Jesus Christ is triumphantly ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, even now, in this very moment. If you're here this morning, and you're not sure what I'm talking about, do you know this one? Do you know Jesus Christ? If not, repent of your sin and your self-reliance. Note the unity that's offered to you by believing and trusting and being saturated in the truth of the gospel. Repent and believe. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ exclusively. Not in the thought that you might get it right, that you might have a bead on truth, but because Jesus Christ himself is truth. Be united with him. Be united with us here in this place, in this church. If you want to know more, if that doesn't, again, make a whole lot of sense to you, if you want to know more, come talk to me after congregational worship. Friends, may we put on the unity that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ and being saturated in it. May we put the gospel on display for the world around us. Every other attempt at finding common ground is a cheap, temporary substitute, but in Christ, we are joined together for all of eternity. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for the reality that you have made a way for us in the person of Jesus Christ. God, we praise you this morning that there is no substitute for this truth. We praise you that Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. God, we pray that in these moments, even as we reflect, as we think about where we once were, dead in our transgressions and sins, as we think about the reality that we have been made alive together with Christ, God, as we think about the reality that Jesus' broken body and shed blood were poured out for us, God, would we recognize that our personal preferences and our simple opinions about what should happen around us are very, very secondary. God, so would you make our hope this morning, Jesus, and him alone. God, would we not seek to do anything except for know Christ and him crucified. God, if we this morning are experiencing even within ourselves um, some festering, lingering problems. Things that are tempting us to become divisive or to drive wedges between us and others in this room who have also been joined to Christ by faith. God, would you root those out? Would we repent this morning and trust you and you alone? God, we thank you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.